Hey everyone, so we're starting a brand new series called His Last Prayer, where we're going to be focusing on a section in John chapter 17 known as Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Now here's what you need to know about the timing of this prayer. Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified, and so in many ways this is his final prayer. And so what does he choose to pray about in this poignant, weighty moment of his life? And so when you think about Jesus praying, I wonder what comes to mind. Maybe you think about Jesus retreating from the crowds in order to spend time with the Father. Or maybe you think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Or maybe you think about Jesus preaching on the Lord's Prayer. But I wonder how many of you are so aware that this prayer of John 17 is his final big prayer. And so when we understand what Jesus chooses to pray about, we've got to mark this off as of highest importance. Now, here's something I want to encourage you to do when we get to these kinds of prayers, and that is to notice what, in this case, Jesus chooses to pray about versus what you tend to pray about. I think most Christians, when they pray, they're going to pray about the most pressing things on their heart. And let's not kid, we're in a season where there are many burdens on our heart. There are many pressing things on our heart. And so we have no shortage of needs and burdens to bring to Jesus in prayer. However, if we only limit ourselves to things that we're going to pray about that are on our heart, there are things that I know God wants us to pray about that we may not automatically bring up in prayer and so we're going to match ourselves as we study this section of John chapter 17 we're going to match ourselves to Jesus prayer so we can start praying the kinds of things that Jesus prays for a couple of years ago, I decided to take golf a little bit more seriously. And if you've seen me play, you know that that season was very short-lived. But one of the ways I tried to improve my golf swing was to download a very specific app. And what that app would do is that it would uh, you would put up your tablet or your phone and you would line yourself up in the crosshairs and you would do your swing. And then what the app would do is that it would compare your swing to Tiger Woods perfect swing with the very same club and so it would time you together it would line you up and it would overlay tiger would swing with your swing and so once you got over the depression you have because of how bad your swing is all right you would start to notice oh wow when i do this he is doing that and when I do this, he is doing that. And so the ideal is you get to adjust your swing to his swing. And that is exactly what we're going to be doing in this series. So I hope that it is helpful for you and it deepens your prayer life at the same time. And so as we get to these final moments of Jesus' life, what does he choose to pray? Well, let's read together John chapter 17. Verses 1 to 5. John 17 verses 1 to 5. And after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. 
I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence and the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, when reading any section of the Bible, it's worth noting if there's any word that's on repeat. And I wonder, as I read that passage out loud, if you notice that there is a word that's on repeat here. And it is the word to glorify or the word glory. Now, this is important. Again, Jesus is not just randomly praying. He is about to be arrested and crucified. And he doesn't start off with help, help, help. He starts off by praying about the glory of God and the Son. Now, this is not very different to how the Lord's prayer starts and ends. Think about how it starts. Our Father, this is how Jesus starts here, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so on one hand, Jesus is relating to God as his loving, intimate, close father. And at the same time, recognizing his glory, recognizing his fame, recognizing just how awesome and majestic he is. And that is exactly how Jesus starts over here. And so as we look at these verses, I want to make make a couple of observations that come out of the text. But the first is to actually recognize an objection that some people have. You see, some people, specifically skeptics about Christianity or religion in general, will say, what kind of a God wants glory? What kind of a God wants people to worship him? I mean, think about people that want all the glory. Think about people that want to be worshipped and adored, maybe not in a religious sense, but it's all about them. They want all the glory. They want people to notice them and comment on them and praise them all the time. What do we tend to say about people like that? We tend to say they're very selfward focused. They may be full of pride. They may be narcissistic. And in the worst case scenario, there may be something clinically wrong with them. And so we kind of despise that in people, but we honor that in God. And that kind of turns some people off. And so while I understand that, I want to make a couple of comments about that that do come out of the text. And the first thing is this. God is glorious. In his very self, in his very nature, he is glorious. He's not trying to be glorious. He's not pointing towards his stuff or his new things or his awesome body. He just is glorious. Now think about when we glory in something about a person. It's usually in something that's actually apart from them or a quality, a subset quality of them. So for example, um, someone who wants the glory uh, might point towards their new car. Now not everyone who has a new car is wanting people's glory, but some are going to, or they're going to look at their wealth or their power as a reason for people's admiration. Right, or maybe even their health or their good looks. But you can actually take those things away, the reason for their glory, and they will still be human. But if you take God's glory away from him, he is no longer God because God is glorious. Think about the glory of the sun. The sun is millions of kilometers away from us. We don't fully understand these kinds of distances. Uh, We don't understand the kinds of power that the sun is burning every second of the day. And the fact that our planet's life all depends on the sun. 
And if you have to take that away from the sun, it is no longer the sun. And in the same way, God is not trying to impress us. He is in his very nature glorious and therefore he is worthy to be worshipped. So that's the first thought. The second thought is that God's glory is good. So I think some people often confuse our worship of God with kind of the pagan gods, right? Where the gods are up there in heaven and they're doing their thing and they're demanding our worship. They're great and mighty. We're puny and small. And they're saying, worship me, feed my ego, glorify me. And if you don't do it properly, I'm going to smite you. Is that what our worshipful relationship to God's glory is like? And here's the thing I want to say about that. God knows that the best thing he can give you is himself. And in this context, God knows that the best thing he can give you is his glorious self. I mean, we know that Jesus is praying about his glory, but listen to verse 2 and 3. For you, Father, granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So what's eternal life? Well, he defines it in the next verse. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. And when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's not just with the mind. It's a lot more about our relational, experiential knowledge of God, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is defined by knowing God relationally. And so eternal life is literally God giving himself to you. All right, his full glorious self. And he knows that that is the best thing that he can give you. This is not about feeding his ego. We've already recognized that God is glorious and he is worthy of our worship. But his glory is also good. Think about the last time your breath was taken away by something that was truly glorious. Maybe you looked up into the starry night sky And you just were overwhelmed by the vastness of what you were trying to take in. Or maybe you stood on a cliff and were overlooking the untamed wild ocean. Or you're standing and just looking at these vast mountains or listening to a piece of music that moved you to glory and to worship. Just think about how you felt in those moments. I would wager that the last person you were thinking of in those moments was yourself. You weren't thinking about yourself. You weren't thinking about your needs. You were so overwhelmed by the glory of whatever you were glorying in. You didn't have to stop and say, well, I guess I better say something nice about the sea or the ocean or the stars or this piece of music. It just automatically came out of you. And so when God gives us himself, his glorious self, because his glory is good, we are moved. In the same way as we are moved when we are in the presence of these other glorious created things, now in the presence of the Creator, we are moved. We are caught up in His glory. We are amazed. We are inspired. And it's not about you. It's about God. But because I am the last person I'm thinking about in that moment, 
There is some way that I am benefiting out of this whole experience. Because God's glory is good. And this is what you were made for. If you had to speak to pastors, you would know that one of the questions that most often comes up is the questions about my purpose. What is my life for? What am I meant to do? And I want to, at this stage, distinguish between capital P purpose and small P purpose, right? Where small P purpose is usually where we focus our attention. Do I do this job or that job? PE or Cape Town? This girl or that girl? Chicken or beef? All right, and we spend all of our time fretting about these things, whereas the Bible spends most of its time speaking about our capital P purpose. And if we understand our capital P purpose, then we can more easily fit all of our small P purposes into the bigger picture. And so what is our capital P purpose? Well, here's the way the Westminster Catechism answers this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? And here's how it answers it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about that. He says, But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Now, I know I've used this illustration before to illustrate this point. But think about what for most people is the highlight of a wedding. Now, I know maybe it's the bride coming down the aisle. But I'd say a close second is when the groom has an opportunity to in front of friends and family to glorify his new wife. It's not about him at that point. It's not about his humor. It's not about his wittiness. It's all about her. And so he is choosing the best words and the best tone to show the world what is going on in his heart at that point of time. But it's all about her. And yes, it's all about her, but it is his greatest joy to glorify him. And because God's glory is good it is our greatest joy to glorify him and and this is what jesus knows but here's something else that jesus knows and this is the third thought for today and that is that jesus is the glory of god jesus is the glory of god here's a couple of verses that just take that thought one step further john chapter 1 verses 14 the word became flesh now the word is jesus the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 verses 3, take notice of the wording here. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, there are no doubt times in the Old Testament where God's presence and God's glory descended and it was all inspiring for the people who were there to witness it. But then these verses are also talking about the time where God's glory came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures are saying that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the glory of God. Now, I don't know if that maybe confuses you. 
Because when I talk about Jesus, I expect that most of us will picture our favorite actor from our favorite Jesus movie. And we're like, what's glorious about that? I mean, the book of Isaiah even says there was nothing about Jesus that would draw our attention. So what's glorious about this person who walked the earth? Yes, maybe when he did the miracles or maybe at the Mount of Transfiguration. But for the rest of the time, I don't understand how Jesus is the glory of God. And so I'm so glad you're asking that question because I'm about to geek out theologically a bit. So just try and come with me on this journey because there are a couple of moments in the Old Testament, these moments where God's glory descended, where the people who were in that moment were awed and inspired and in fact, in many times in fear of the sheer power of God's glory and presence. And I want to show you how those are pointing towards Jesus. So I'm going to look at kind of two and a half of those moments. And you'll see what I mean now in a second. Firstly, let's talk about Ezekiel chapter one. So Ezekiel is a prophet. There's a whole book about him in the Old Testament, or at least about his prophecies. And so he's not in Israel. He's actually in exile. He's sitting next to a river and he has one of these experiences of the full glorious presence of God. Now you need to go read that in your own time. It is quite remarkable. And you can imagine that he's using words like thunder and lightning and power and brilliance. And there's these crazy creatures and there's these wheels and there's the spirit of God and it's almost like he's grappling for language to describe exactly what's going on here and then above this whole kind of Godmobile contraption this is what he sees above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Earlier, I asked you just to recall the language that Hebrews 1 verses 3 used to describe God talking about the radiance around him. And this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So as Ezekiel describes this, he's not just seeing thunder and lightning and bright lights and power. At the center of this vision is some brilliant human-like figure and the words he uses to describe this figure is exactly the words that the author of the Hebrews uses and so Ezekiel is in many ways seeing Jesus Christ hundreds of years before the Jesus movie started all right so that's Ezekiel chapter one now I want to make this point more clear by looking at Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah is working in the temple and this is his experience he says in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
So once again, Isaiah is seeing this glorious picture of God surrounded by these angelic creatures, but that the center of this vision is a human-like figure. And John, the same John that we're reading from, he says in John 12 verses 41, he said, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him. John says very clearly that this being, this glorious being that Isaiah saw was Jesus. And then we could go to Daniel chapter 7. And this is something we're not going to spend much more time on. But go read Daniel chapter 7. And it describes this glorious figure known as the Son of Man. Jesus comes down and he says, I am the Son of Man. And so we're looking at these old Testament's glorious experiences of God's power and presence and glory, and all of them find their focus in Jesus. When Jesus prays in this prayer, when he says in verse 5, he says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We, we are seeing that these guys are seeing Jesus hundreds of years before Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth. And so when we understand that Jesus is the glory of God, don't just picture your favorite actor from your favorite Jesus movie. We get to import Ezekiel chapter 1. We get to import Daniel chapter 7. We get to import Isaiah chapter 6. These glorious visions of God's presence and power into the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the glory of God. Now, Jesus is praying about his glory and the glory of the Father. And he's going to talk about another way that God gets the glory. And this is what he says in verse 4. He says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And the fourth thought for today is that Jesus' obedience brings God glory. See, often we think, well, to glorify God means we need to worship Him, which is true. But glorifying God is so much more than saying, praise God every two sentences. Jesus understands that his obedience and fulfilling the purposes that God had for him was a way of bringing God glory. And in the same way, if we want to give God glory, we need to live lives of obedience. We need to fulfill our capital P purposes and all of our small P purposes as we live our lives of faith obediently before him and if we are to live lives that glorify God we are going to very often need to choose between giving God glory and giving ourselves or giving man glory and I'm hoping that as you get a greater vision of God's glory the scales are going to kind of tip towards your life lived in a way that gives God all the glory now, we're talking about glory. I've spoken about these Old Testament visions of God's glory. But remember the context. The context is Jesus is not having this incredible spiritual moment. Rather, the context is Jesus is about to go and die. And so what's glorious about that? And when we read these verses, and also when we read the chapters building up to this section, 
we recognize that for Jesus, the cross was not only the place of his suffering, but the cross was the place of his glory. Which is so counterintuitive. And this is where we need to look at the cross with eyes of faith. You see, the eyes of man is going to look at the cross as a place of shame where Jesus died a criminal death, a place of weakness. But if we're going to look at the cross with eyes of faith, that means we're going to interpret the cross through the eyes of Scripture and the way God sees the cross. And it is going to be a place of glory, a place of glory, because this is where the king gave his life for the victory over our sin and over death and over all that overpowers us. This is the moment of the victory of the king. And therefore, this is the moment of glory. And this is why Paul says late in Galatians 6 verses 14. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a series on prayer. This is a series on the prayer of Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, because of this tragic season that we're in, we've got no shortage of things we're praying for. And I would imagine you're praying for God's power. You're praying for God's help. You're praying for God's resources. You're praying for God's perspective. You're praying for God's answers. You're praying for God's healing. And please continue praying for those things. But when was the last time you prayed for God's glory? Jesus was about to suffer. And the first thing he thinks of is God's glory. Maybe you responded by saying, listen, Stephen, when things are easier, then I will live the life of glory. Then I will pray for God's glory. But for now, I just need his help. Well, I want to remind you of Job, who had his own kind of personal pandemic, where he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his business. And he lost his health. Anything that he could have gloried in was taken away from him. And there he is at just a pitiful moment of his life, bringing his questions and bringing his pain to God. And at the end of the book of Job, he encounters this majestic, powerful, glorious God. But does God give him answers? No. Does God give him perspective? No. Does God kind of explain himself so that, Job, if you understand, then from my perspective, then maybe you'll have what you need in order to get through things. No. What does God do? God gives Job a glorious vision of himself. And does Job go, God, that's not really what I wanted. No. Job responds by saying, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And Job was satisfied, even in this lowest moment of his life, with this vision of the glory of God. Now, I know you need God's help. I know you need God's presence. I know you need God's healing. I know you need God's sustenance. I know you need God's supply. I know you're desperate for answers. But maybe what you need most is a vision of God's glory. And so to that end, I want to pray for us. Let us pray. Jesus, we want to honor you and follow you in our prayer by praying for your glory. 
And Father, we want to recognize that you are glorious. And even in this tough season where we are surrounded by so much difficulty, you are still glorious and you are still worthy of our praise. We also know that your glory is good. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would enable us to see and to know and experience the glorious good God. That for a second our eyes would be taken off ourselves and onto you. And then the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of your glory. So help us see your glory. Your glorious presence that you give us in eternal life. And Father, maybe that doesn't give us all the answers that we need. But I pray that as our hearts behold you, that we will be moved and we will be caught up in something that is bigger than our circumstances. And that we will be different. And that we will have greater faith and greater hope and greater vision. God, do this for us. And may our lives reflect that as we live lives that follow you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.